So my son has been into sharks lately, which I always find a little bit creepy when people are into sharks. Uh, the, the shark week, the people that get most exciting, I'm kind of like, don't cross them. Uh, but as I was reading this text, and as I'm seeing this picture of, of a shark on the cover of a book, I thought about a little fact that I had learned. And that was that many people like to get sharks for their fish tanks. And what I was told was that you can get a little shark six inches long, a little, little baby shark, and if you put it into a small tank, it will not grow to its full size. It'll only grow as big as the tank permits. But then if you were to take that same shark and, and put it out in the sea, it might become eight feet long or ten feet long. And I remember I had heard that in a sermon on the radio when a preacher said the same thing often happens with Christians, that, that they will think they're fully matured, but what has happened is that they've restricted themselves, and, and they're not recognizing how big God is and how big a plan God has for the life, and so they're not actually growing in faith. They're, they're mature, tiny, little sharks. Uh, but it didn't sound quite right to me, so I looked it up, and I found out that's actually not true. I've heard that about all sorts of different fish, goldfish, all different fish. You put them in a small bowl, and they will only grow to the size that the bowl permits. Somehow they just intuitively know. But the fact is that there are other things that make them not grow. Often they're underfed. The, the water quality is low. There, there's not enough nutrients for them. And, and there's these things called hormone inhibitors that build up in the water if there's not enough of it, and it stunts their growth. So rather than being this natural mechanism, it's kind of this sad example of us poorly paying, uh, caring for our pets. And perhaps that's an even better illustration for what happens with Christians who are not properly feeding who are not properly uh, getting into the Word and exposing themselves to God's holy Word that is written for us, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, who are not in prayer, who are not in fellowship with one another and helping one another grow. And Paul, as he looks at this Corinthian church, is worried that just that might be happening with the church to whom he is writing. And this is kind of the climax of this whole section we've been looking at for a month now. In which Paul, as he explained in the text last week, is boasting in his weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon him. And he's very sarcastic in this passage. I appreciate Kim's reading where she got a little of that juice into the, into the actual vocalizing of, of some of these words. Apologizing that he didn't like, bear them down and, and didn't become a burden to them by charging them for his ministry, that he wasn't strong enough to do that sort of thing. And he boasts in his weakness because he says that's where God's power is made perfect, in his weakness. And as he brings this home, he tells them, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He's not, he, when he comes back, he's still not going to charge them or burden them. He says, I'll spend of my own money and even of my very self. I will be spent for you. All that I have, all that I am, I will give to keep you from walking away from Christ. I will keep, in fact, the Greek says, for your souls or for yourselves. As a true friend, Paul seeks their good more than their goodwill. He doesn't want to be liked. That's what the super apostles, these false apostles who are in their midst, that's what they wanted, to be liked. Paul's like a good parent. He even calls himself a parent here. 
Yeah, I'm not here to be your friend as much as I'm here to be a father to you in the faith. And so he says, I'll love you all the more, even though you respond by loving me less. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you and sent the brother with him. Remember this famous brother that he mentioned earlier? Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? The I here is what's called emphatic. It's not needed, the the word I. It's already built into the verb. He's saying, me, I myself, did I ever do anything? That was a burden to you. These false apostles had accused him of crafty deception. There was this insinuation that although he was not a burden, he kind of maneuvered the collection for the other church in such a way that it would never reach the other church and it would all wind up in his pockets. But St. Paul answers this false accusation by citing the impeccable behavior of these men that he sent and by saying, I'm with them. In fact, they're with me. And we're all of one mind. Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking, in Christ, and all for your upbuilding. He's not, I don't don't need to defend myself before you, he says. My speech, my case that I've made for my apostleship has been before God, has been in Christ, and has been for your benefit. You're not the arbiters of my soul. I am responsible for your souls. And they are in grave danger. And this is where he starts to get... There's a little threat in here. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and you may not find me as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder... He's worried that he's going to come back and find the church as they've been. Now, this is the third letter. Remember, 1 Corinthians, and then there's a lost letter, and and there's a third letter. And then there was also this sorrowful visit in there as well. He's been trying and trying to help this church get over what's holding them back and pulling them down. And all the same, he has this fear, this anxiety that when he gets there, he says, I will not find you as I wish you to be. Meaning he'll find them continuing in sin and rebellion, being unrepentant and unrepenting. He's afraid there will be quarreling, or as the King James says, contentions, which brings us back to 1 Corinthians 1. What was the main problem he was addressing way back there? There is infighting among you. Some say, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Jesus, I follow Apollos, and everyone wanted to one-up everyone else. He's afraid he's still going to find that. And what goes right along with it? Jealousy. There's something in the water that would keep them from growing. And this is the stuff. Self-seeking. Other sinful attitudes and behaviors have been modeled by these false apostles, these super apostles, as he ironically calls them. Anger and strifes. Factitious schemes. Ambitious self-seeking. And when we focus on how great I am, The end result is the other stuff that he fears. Backbiting, slander, hostility, gossip. To make me look better and more holy, I will whisper a bit about what you are struggling with and use it to make you look less holy. He fears there will be conceit, or again, the King James, swellings. Very visual. 
puffed up, puffing ourselves up like a puffer fish, a stunted fish that hasn't grown past how big it was as a little child, but puffing itself up in this display of sad irony. That they're not growing. Again, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he writes this, But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready. And even now, you're not ready. For you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. And are you not being merely human? This tells us we're meant to be something more than merely human. We're made for something bigger. To be in the image of God, redeemed by the death and resurrection of Christ, where He is at work in our hearts. So that we're not operating out of the flesh, but out of the Spirit. And you know, it's hard to read that big long list of sins that he's afraid he's going to find and then reconcile that with Paul, just a few chapters earlier, bragging about this church. How, how they have great gifts and excel as leaders. And he gives another list back there in 2 Corinthians 8. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love for you, in our love for you, rather, see that you also excel in this act of grace as well. How can these two things even be? I, you excel in faith and in love, and yet I'm afraid I'll find backbiting and strifes and swellings. How can that be? It happens because they're in Corinth. And Corinth is a town of great sin and wickedness. Corinth was a place where there were pagan temples. And what went along with pagan temples was worship that involved fornication and temple prostitution. There in Corinth, it was a, a seaport, and, and I know we got some Navy guys here, but sometimes, in some places, sailors were known for going port to port and bringing an appetite of the flesh with them, and that was happening in Corinth. And what was happening in the church was that rather than the church leavening the city, the culture of the city was leavening the church. Now, when we come together at the Lord's Supper, at this altar, we have unleavened bread because we are following the, the tradition that was laid down at the Last Supper and all the way back through the Passover. And many people falsely assume that in the Bible, leaven always means sin. Jesus does say, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, because just like you take a little pinch of dough that has leaven in it, which is kind of like having yeast in it, you put it into a big lump of dough and the leaven will spread Watch out for the leaven, the teaching of the Pharisees. But in the same way, or the opposite way rather, we see that Jesus says, you're like leaven going out. And you're supposed to spread the message of the kingdom, the gospel throughout the whole. It's going to happen one way or the other. The church often tries to just climb into this like Ziploc bag and from the inside go, there, we're separate now. We're not going to mess with them. They're not going to mess with us. One way or another, the leavening will happen. The church will bring the gospel, that's our leaven, our continuity, out into the world, or the world will bring its values into the church. What was happening at this time was that 
Paul wasn't quite sure which way the wind was blowing. Are they leavening or being leavened? And today, there's also great danger of the world with values that could never be accused or confused with being Christian, becoming the values of the church. So his end game here is, if I find you not as I wish, you're going to find me not as you wish. I am done playing games, Paul is essentially saying. And as he gets into this, he tells them they've been asking for this all along. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. We have this wonderful example in First and Second Corinthians of, of this guy who had fallen into sexual sin and he had been put out of the church. He had repented and been brought back in. And Paul says, accept him, bring him back, embrace him. But apparently there are many others who hadn't repented. And Paul is going to deal that, with that when he comes back. Again, he says, I'm going to be humbled. I'm going to mourn. He hurts when they hurt. A faithful pastor is humbled at, or again, as the King James says, bewails the fall of his people as if it were his own. Paul had previously kind of passed over and said, okay, we'll deal with that later. There's time. Repent. He'd passed over the sin as we read that God had formerly passed over the sins done in ignorance before the coming of Christ. But there does come a day, an hour, when judgment arrives. And Paul says, next time you see me, it's that hour for you guys. He'd previously spared them. We think about how in 1 Peter 4, not long ago, we read these words. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He then reminds them that out of the mouths of two or three witnesses, any charge is to be confirmed. That comes from Deuteronomy. And he says, I visited you now two times, and this will be the third. And those are the two or three witnesses that will confirm what your heart really is. That those who said, ah, this isn't really me, I'm just, I'm, I'm having a bad time, I'm, I'm backsliding, I'm, I'm having an off year. He says, I've known you a while now. And when I return, I'm going to help you understand who you are. And if I'm going to be humiliated, he uses this term, my God. Not the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, my God. He's, he's saying, I'm submitting to whatever he will do, whatever he will have me find, even if it is humiliating. One of my favorite writers of devotional materials, a guy named Phil Yancey, Philip Yancey, and he once made a fascinating observation about people and fulfillment. See, as a, as a writer and a journalist, he'd interviewed a lot of different people, very wide range, including those who were very powerful and rich and had it all, and those who had seemingly nothing. And he says he, he divides the people that he has interviewed and gotten to know and, and, and laid out in his writing into two groups, stars and servants. you got your stars and you got your servants. Now, most people want to be stars, right? That way someone will want to watch you dancing on TV. But as he looked at the stars, superstar athletes, famous authors, TV personalities, he said... He had a one feeling as he thought back at that list of people, and it was sympathy. It was pity. 
They were idols, he says. Quote, they're as miserable a group of people as I have ever met. According to the standards of this age, they have it all. They have it made. They're what we should want to be. They're famous. Their pictures are in magazines. They have these enormous, expensive homes surrounded by walls so nobody can come in and bother them. And many people, even in the church, spend a lot of their time flipping through magazines wishing we were them. We don't see, though, says Philip Yancey, the troubled marriages, the tormented psyches, the incurable self-doubts. Only once in a while when one of them reaches the end of him or herself and commits suicide do we realize that this stuff is there under the surface, even when they have everything. He contrasts this with the lifestyle of, of these he calls servants, including such folks as relief workers in Bangladesh, language experts scattered throughout the jungles of South Africa and South America and, and throughout the world as they are translating the, the Bible into languages, obscure languages, maybe not even a, a group that, that, that speaks, 10,000 people speak a language, 5,000 people, and they're working for years and years. He says, I was prepared to honor and admire these servants, to uphold them as inspiring examples. I was not prepared to envy them. But, he says, I did. I envied them. He reflected on these two groups, the stars and the servants, and he declared... Quote, the servants clearly emerge as the favored ones, the graced ones. They work for low pay, long hours, and no applause, wasting their talents among the poor and uneducated. But somehow in the process of lo losing their lives, they have found them. Which is exactly what Jesus promised. Whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul says, I'm going to come back. And you're going to find that you've either followed the super apostles and lost yourselves, lost your souls, lost your lives, chasing after fame and comfort and riches, or that you've followed Jesus with a cross on your back, lost your life for his sake, and have found it. I warned those who sinned before all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did while present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since, he says, you, you asked for it, you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. All along they've been saying, well, what we hear from the super apostles is that when you write a letter, you're really tough, but when you show up, you're all nice and soft and squishy. Well, which is it? And he says, okay, I'll show up, and I'll be the same as you find in my writing." Remember, back in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. I've already shown you signs and wonders and all the rest. You should have believed me. But if this is what it takes, I'll come with judgment. He's following again in the footsteps of Jesus. Just as Christ suffered with long suffering among the people, he, he suffered as they misunderstood, as, as we asked stupid questions and asked for things like, uh, when your kingdom comes, can we be on the right and the left? Thanks. Yet at the same time, he continually asked this rhetorical question, how long? How long shall I put up with you, this, this evil, wicked, and adulterous generation? Again, back in 1 Corinthians, all this already came up. He says, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? This reminds me of some of the teaching of our Lord Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now we know that there is wisdom in that for living. We also know that there is wisdom in that spiritually. That there is a sense in which we are on our way to a court date when a judge will look down. And we have an adversary, which is God's holiness, His righteousness. And we know that when we stand before Him, he will, we will have to answer for every idle word, every thought, every deed. And so the advice to make peace on the way applies. Before you arrive at the bench of the judge, make peace. And peace comes through Jesus Christ. Paul says in the same way, I'm on my way there. Make your peace. Repent of your sins. Turn to God. He will forgive you. He will give you a new heart and new life. He'll give you that second chance, that 70-second chance, that two-millionth chance. But turn from your sin. Go and sin no more. Turn to Him and be saved. For He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in Him. But in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. In weakness, Christ was crucified. But in power, He was raised again. He took our weakness upon Himself and suffered as one of us. It was a great humiliation, but on the third day, the tomb was empty and death was defeated. And those Roman guards who stood there killing machines who had Him at their mercy just three days earlier fell to the ground and shook and became as dead men. Paul says, I know I'm walking through that very same path. It looks like weakness to the world, but it's power. And I know that if I follow Jesus, He will save me. But He says to them, listen, you don't have forever. And so I'm putting this end date here. When I arrive, those who have not repented will be put out of the church. Those who have not turned from their sins, those who are still saying, well, I can be a little leavened by the culture around and it won't make much of a difference. I'm going to call them to the carpet. He knows that he may be humiliated, but he also understands that Christ was willing to be humiliated for us. Pinned naked to a cross, helpless, hanging there like a common criminal, but in power, defeating death, sin, and Satan. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that Jesus Christ was willing to endure weakness, humiliation, and, and to become a fool in the eyes of the world so that we could have strength and power and new life and wisdom from God. Lord, we pray that if there are any of us who are playing the same game that they were playing in Corinth, of thinking, well, I've got time. I may as well spend uh, a little more time in idleness, a little more time in sin, a little more time flirting with the culture. I can keep myself from being leavened. Lord, may we remember that we will either be leavening or we'll be leavened by the world, but we won't be able to do neither. We pray as we come to this Lord's table and take this unleavened bread that you will remind us in our spirits that we belong to you, that because of the weakness of Christ, we have strength that because He died on a cross, we will never perish. 
And Lord, if there's anyone here whose sin has begun to rule their life, I pray that even in this moment, before they come to that table, they would find repentance, forgiveness of sins, that they would confess that which has remained unconfessed, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.